If you're new with us, uh, we've been doing a, a short series. This is our last sermon in it called Your Kingdom Come, How Citizens of Heaven Live on Earth. And we've considered uh, what our, our uh, responsibility is to one another. Uh, we've talked about how we relate to uh, the, govern, the governing authorities, uh, how we relate to our enemies and to our neighbors. And uh, tonight we finished this series. We've talked about the global spread of the gospel last week uh, in Micah 6, 8, a very important passage about uh, how God's people are called to live justly uh, in this society. And so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we look at these eight verses. Father, what a privilege it is tonight to open the book and to study it and be reminded of your mighty acts and to be reminded of what you call us to. And so I pray that tonight you would uh, burn in our hearts, uh, Lord, uh, a sincere devotion to you, uh, a grateful obedience uh, to our God who's worthy of praise, worthy of our lives. Uh, do this, we pray, by the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you, if you've uh, been around uh, Christianity for any time at all, uh, you're probably familiar with this verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It's one of the, one of the uh, hot verses in the Old Testament. Uh, it summarizes basic Christi Christian ethics uh, wonderfully. Uh, my classy hippie wife, uh, Kimberly, uh, has it tattooed on her foot, uh, lest she forget Micah chapter 6, 8. Uh, it hangs in public facilities uh, around uh, the world. It's often quoted by politicians. In fact, uh, former President uh, George W. Bush uh, cited it at Representative John Lewis's memorial service recently. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful verse to meditate on. But what I want you to see tonight is Micah 6.8 in its context. Uh, and it's important that we, we do that in order to understand what, what, what motivates a kind of life like this. Because most of us uh, tonight would not disagree that this is uh, the way we should live, but it's what we, what we struggle with is uh, proper motivation. And as we look into Micah's world, what we find is that God's people had grown cold toward God. You see this in the first five verses of the chapter. And what had happened was something along the lines of, of what happens in marriages oftentimes that, that uh, are, are not good. You know, marriages can suffer for a number of reasons. Uh, everything from unrealistic expectations to communication problems to failure to manage things at uh, home and work and so on. But oftentimes marriages uh, can, uh, can uh, uh, gr gr go in the wrong direction because of the slow drift uh, that happens when a spouse takes the other spouse for granted, when he or she fails to show appreciation and gratitude for the other. And what happens is kind of an emotional coldness sets in uh, and uh, feelings are hurt often as a result, severely damaging the relationship. And that that's what was going on between Israel and God. God had not grown cold toward Israel, but Israel had taken the Lord for granted. They had uh, failed to understand and appreciate rightly all that he had done for them. And we can fall prey to the same problem. And so the language in the first five verses of Micah is the language of a husband pleading to his wife. God reminds his people of what he did for them in the past in order to motivate them to obedience in the future. An obedience that is marked by justice, mercy, and humility. He calls them to remember his saving acts in history. So Micah 6, 8 is a response to the gospel. 
And Micah 6.8 is not the gospel. That is, it's not if you do Micah 6.8, you will be saved. But rather, it is the proper response to what God has done. This is the pattern you see throughout the Bible, right? Um, the Ten Commandments, for example, in Exodus 20, begins with, I brought you out of Egypt, therefore obey, right? This is the pattern you see in the New Testament. Because of what Christ has done for us, we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to him. And it's that same pattern you see here in Micah 6, verses 1 to 8. After showing them, reminding them of what he did for them, he tells them what he expects from them. Now, Micah is giving this word in a time of great spiritual and societal brokenness, and he addresses everyone. In chapter 1, verse 2, he addresses the whole earth. In chapter 3, he talks to leaders. He also talks to the prophets. He addresses businessmen. He even addresses himself. And that's why Micah, through the years, has been called the people's prophet. And that is because he takes up for the weak and the powerless, and he calls everyone to account. This little guy who was from a, a backwater town of Morasheth ministers for about 53 years. And what you have in the book of Micah is essentially kind of Micah's greatest hits over a 53-year time period. And he thunders away at all kinds of corruption. He addresses idolatry, the seizing of land from the weak, a refusal to listen to faithful preaching, robbing poor refugees, taking advantage of widows, taking away the inheritance of children, politicians failing to stand up for justice, leaders taking uh, people's lives in order to complete building projects, judges taking bribes, businessmen cheating, people shedding innocent blood, people distrusting everyone in society. He goes after the big things and the small things. He, he is amazingly comprehensive in his word. I've called Micah before the Stephen Curry of the prophets because of his incredible range. Stephen Curry's a great uh, shooting guard for Golden State. Micah addresses all of these things. If he were alive today, he would address both the large-scale headlines as well as the divorced husband who isn't paying child support, domestic violence, racial prejudice, and on and on and on. It's, a, it's quite a little book that he gives us. It flows in and out of good news and bad news, of what God expects, of what Israel is doing, and how he calls them back uh, to obedience. And so I'd like for us to look at it tonight in just two parts, remembrance, verses one to five, and requirements, verses six to eight. As the people are taught here to remember what God had done for them in order to spur them on to a life of obedience. Okay, so remembrance. Verses one and two. Micah begins with hear. Hear what the Lord says. You see these cycles in Micah's book that begins with the word hear. There are like three cycles of sermons in the book of Micah. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Plead your case before the mountains. So it's like the mountains are God's witnesses. And the mountains here convey several ideas, like the fact that all of creation is under God's authority. They, they do his word. The mountains are public, and God's people were to live their lives, their, their, their faith out publicly. The mountains were immovable, whereas God's people were fickle. And the mountains, of course, draw our attention back to God's covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. And that whole Exodus story is about to be recounted here. And so he calls on the mountains to be the witnesses of what God is about to say to them. And he says, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, 
and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people. And so we know something strong is coming if you introduce something like that. And what you expect to see is kind of a list of grievances that God has against Israel. But again, the language now shifts to a very personal language, like a husband to a wife. Notice verse 3 is, God says, oh my people. It's, it's not a list of grievances, though he could do that. But instead, it's the language of love, the language of relationship. As he asks them the question, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Why is it that you find me to be your God a wearisome thing? You would ask today, is serving me boring to you? Is it a burden to you? How have I made your life wearisome? And there is no answer. As he says, answer me. And so the Lord now calls them to consider what he's done for them in the past as they just feel weary of God, of of serving him to be a burdensome thing. And so what you have in verses four and five is essentially the recounting of God bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. There are four righteous acts that Micah notes here in verses four and five in order to stir them up and to replace the weariness that they feel of of knowing God with a worship of God. And so those four righteous acts, he calls them righteous acts in verse five, is the act of deliverance, guidance, intervention, and completion. And all of this act of salvation in the Old Testament is a pointer to the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ who died and rose for us, who brought us a greater exodus as the New Testament shows us, who transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so we look at the first one here, deliverance in verse four, when he says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So he says to them at first, remember the exodus. This was the greatest act in Old Testament salvation history, and it was a foreshadowing of the greater exodus that we have in Jesus Christ, the one who is greater than Moses. And he says to his people here, I I have not let you down, I've actually brought you up. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, I brought you up from that muddy Nile, I brought you up from uh, the house of slavery to Pharaoh, and I have rescued you. And this story of uh, the Exodus is recounted again and again and again in the Old Testament. Uh, Throughout the Psalms, uh, this morning I was reading Psalm 77, where uh, we read of this community lament. Asaph is just in a low condition, and the people are lamenting their condition. And after going on uh, in lament for about 10 verses, Asaph pivots and he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will ponder all your work. With your arm, you redeemed your people. And this look back to the deeds of the Lord, to the redemption that God provided in the Exodus, inspired praise and gratitude in the present. And it's the same thing that we need to do. We have to rehearse the gospel in our hearts. We have to consider afresh day by day that we have been brought up from the pit of sin and delivered through Jesus Christ. 
We have been delivered from something worse than bondage to Pharaoh, namely namely slavery to sin, to works-based salvation and idolatry. We were helpless and hopeless, but we have been rescued. And in response to that, what do we do? We offer up our lives in grateful obedience. But it's when we forget these things. We forget where we were and where God has placed us now. That it seems like a wearisome thing to serve God. A burdensome thing to serve God. But when you consider the gospel, you realize we get to serve God. We know this God. He has brought us up. He's brought us out. He's set our feet on a rock. And we say, we offer up our lives to you in devotion. So that's the first act, deliverance. The second act is guidance. When he says, I redeemed you out of bondage, he then says, I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. In other words, when God brought them out of Egypt, he didn't just leave them to go on their own. Hey guys, I'm going to bring you out of slavery. Have a good one. But rather, he gave them teachers. He gave them leaders. He gave the law to Moses to teach and to guide. He gave Aaron, the priest, to offer sacrifices for their sins. Miriam, who had her little tambourine doing her little thing, you know, leading people in praise to God. And the same is true for us in this particular uh, time in the new covenant, that we have been rescued out of slavery, brought into the kingdom of God, but God doesn't redeem us to leave us. He redeems us and guides us. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the church. His hands are not off of us. His hands are on us, and he's guiding us to glory. In fact, you recall in uh, 2 Peter, he refers to the Bible as a lamp shining in a dark place that's giving us light until we get to our final destination. I love how the psalmist in Psalm 73 puts it. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. He's rescued us, he guides us, and he will eventually receive us. And again, it is when we consider these things afresh that service to God is not a wearisome thing. We, we offer up our lives in grateful obedience that he's with us, church. He's guiding us. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we offer up our, our praise to him and our lives to him. The third act here is intervention. He, he tells this story briefly of Balak and, and Balaam. And as he says in verse five, oh, my people. I just love the tenderness of that. Like God here is pleading with his people. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. Remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. This is a lesser known story, but it's a story that's recounted in various places in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Um, but it is the story of King uh, uh, Balak of Moab, who was a revi- uh, 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 an enemy of Israel, who finds this little uh, prophet for hire, Balaam, and he tries to hire him out to pronounce a curse on Israel because the king of Moab is scared of Israel. And every time Balaam would open his mouth, God would intervene and only blessing would come out of his mouth. So this, this enemy is devising a scheme against God's people. And what does God do but step in and bless them? And so God delivers them from Egypt, guides them with Moses, Arian, uh, Arian, Aaron, and Miriam. And then when, his enemy, when the enemies of, of God try to do something against God's people, he steps in. 
And the same is true today. In this salvation that we have as God is guiding us to glory, we could all perhaps think of times in which God turned curse into blessing, in which God intervened in particular crises, in particularly challenging times, and he blessed us. Paul recounts one of those in 2 Timothy 4, when he says, at my first defense, no one stood by me or with me, but the Lord strengthened me. And he said, he delivered me from the lion's mouth. It's good to know that our God is involved. He is active. And when you consider the redemption you've had, when you consider the guidance you have, when you consider that God's hands are not off of us, but on us, he's intervening and blessing, service to God is not a burdensome thing. Obedience to God is, is a glad thing. And that leads us to the fourth act. The fourth righteous act is what I'm calling completion. He says, you remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Now, Shittim is the last little area, town, before Israel crossed into the promised land. So it's on the east side of the Jordan. Gilgal is the first town on the, on, that they stepped into in the promised land on the west side of the Jordan. And he basically is saying here, you remember how I fulfilled what I said I was going to do. How I completed what I started. And it is good to know tonight that our God finishes what he starts. The salvation that he has worked in us will be completed. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish what he started. The, the crossing into the promised land is a foreshadowing, a type of us crossing into the new creation. We will step foot in a new creation. He will finish what he started. And you see, in all of this, he says, the purpose of it is that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. That is that you may remember all that God has done. And to remember something, biblically speaking, means to actualize it in the present. It means to, to allow it to have an impact in your present life. And so what we would say in New Covenant terms is remember the gospel. Remember the good news. You have been delivered from a worse bondage to that to Pharaoh. You have guidance now for the journey. You have a God who longs to bless his people and not curse him. You have a God who will bring to completion everything that he has started in our lives. This is part of the purpose of preaching, to, to rehearse and to remind you of the good news. This is the part, <clears throat> part of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. As Jesus says, we do this in remembrance of him in order that we may give him thanks and it may inspire devotion. You see, this is all important because as we prepare to get to verse eight, to do justice and mercy, <clears throat> you need proper motivation to do it. And guilt will not motivate you to do Micah 6, 8. It's not a big enough engine, but grace will. Redemption will. A vision of new creation will. You see, we need that engine. We need the gospel to motivate us to obedience, to faithfulness. And that's where we turn now, as Micah tells his people what God wants from them. I don't know if you uh, have anybody in your family or your network where you, you know, around Christmas time, you're always wondering, what do I get this person? Because they literally have everything. <clears throat> you know, what, what, what can we give them? It's that kind of question that Micah raises now in verse six. What is it that we give to God in response to his deliverance, his guidance, his intervention, his completion? What can we offer him? And so 
the people here offer everything but that which God wants. And what he wants is their lives. What he wants is obedience. But instead, there are three kinds of sacrifices that, that are mentioned here that God doesn't want. A sacrifice of quality, a sacrifice of quantity, and a sacrifice of the firstborn. That's not what God wants. He wants Micah 6.8. Look at the first one here, the sacrifice of quality. He says, and what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Is that what God wants? Sacrifice of quality, this is the burnt offering, not the fellowship offering. The fellowship offering, part of that offering got returned back to the worshiper. The burnt offering, everything was consumed, and a calf a year old was worth a year's labor and wages. Is this what God wants? A year worth of our labor and our wages. No. How about the sacrifice of quantity? He turns to verse 7 and he says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens, ten thousands of rivers of oil? You think about those sacrifices that Solomon gave to God. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. Is this what we give to God in response to his redemption? In response to the good news of what he's done for us? No. Well, it escalates to the sacrifice of the firstborn. What about that? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is not what God wants. Child sacrifice was and is an abomination to the Lord. It was part of the idolatrous practice of uh, worship to, to the god Molech. This is not what God wants. They're wondering, how can I get atonement for my sins? What does the Lord require from us? Is not the sacrifice of our firstborn. The New Testament shows us what God has done for the sin of our soul. He's offered up his own beloved son. What is it then that God requires? Well, it couldn't be clearer, could it, in verse 8? Don't you guys like clear instructions? It's not ambiguous. He has told you, old man, what is good. In other words, this is not new. This is the kind of thing that's been borne out throughout the Old Testament. He's already told you, old man. What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Now let's just talk about these three for a bit before we wrap it up. Justice. This is the Hebrew word mitzvot, which is used about 200 times in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the key texts is Deuteronomy chapter 10, where justice there involves um, treating people fairly, not showing favoritism, caring for uh, orphans, widows, strangers, not taking bribes. Mike is drawing on all of this. This is a, a wonderful and a, an important biblical term, and we need to be reminded in a culture that often loves to debate, uh, uh, quote-unquote, social justice, that justice is our word. This is a, this is a Bible word. We, we must not let culture hijack uh, this concept. We worship the God of justice. He has revealed himself to be such. And we see his justice reflected throughout the scriptures and in the gospel itself. As Paul says in Romans 3 about our salvation, God is both the just and the justifier. And so um, we, we receive this concept and want to grow in our understanding of it and application of it. Jesus had a hard time with religious people who did not give a rip about others. As he told the Pharisees in one particular place, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he said, uh, you blind God, you're straining out a gnat and squ- swallowing a camel. Now you see this sort of thing, again, in, in a, a variety of places. Israel was to be a community of justice. Her leaders were to be just. Psalm 82 is one particular example where leaders are called on uh, to care for the weak and the needy, uh, the fatherless, the widow. Numerous other passages, we read one of them tonight from Isaiah chapter 1, call God's people to reflect his character by doing the work of justice. The prophets speak of this uh, regularly. Uh, several years ago now, actually, I don't know, was that last year I preached on the minor prophets? I can't remember. It seemed like 25 years ago now uh, due to 2020, but whenever it was, uh, Amos thunders away at injustice. In fact, I was reading uh, Amos chapter 4 this morning, how uh, the prophet begins with, hear this, you cows of Bashan. <laughs> and then he goes on this tirade about their failure to care for the weak and the needy. And he gets to chapter 5 in this classic passage about letting justice roll like the river. And I love it in the message paraphrase. Eugene Peterson puts it like this, Amos 5, 21 to 24. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. And Micah agrees, this is what God wants from us. This would involve everything from having personal integrity in our relationships, integrity in school, at work, treating people fairly, using your influence for those who have no influence, giving people their rights, respecting others. This is an everyday sort of thing. In fact, one of my favorite texts on this is Job chapter 29, verses 12 to 16, where Job says that he, he puts on justice like a turban. He wears it like clothes. That is to say, you just make this a way of life, that you decide to live a righteous, a just life. Now, a couple of resources that I would commend at this point would be Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, on this subject, and then another groundbreaking book by Tony Morita called Ordinary. Or if you want the Italian version, it's Ordinario. That's my favorite one, written by Antonio. Uh, That book I wrote in uh, 2015 that was originally called Everyday Justice, which is the title I liked better, but they changed it and I wasn't happy about it. But anyway, you can find both of those. And, And both of these are about how you live a just life within the ordinary rhythm of your life, because that's what God is calling us to. And this glorious theme climaxes in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, As Isaiah says, he will bring justice to the nations. We will reflect on that as we prepare for Advent, as we think about not only the first coming of Jesus, but his second coming in which Jesus Christ will make all things new and will bring in total shalom, total peace. And that's why I often say that the longing for justice is ultimately the longing for Jesus. There is an ache in the human heart for justice, and we we protest when justice is not being done. And why is that in our hearts? And when will all of that be resolved? It will only be resolved when Jesus Christ comes and brings the climax of his kingdom. And this ache for justice is an ache for Jesus. Soon we'll sing at Christmas, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name shall all oppression cease.
It's coming. Do justice, love, kindness, or mercy. This word mercy here, or kindness, is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a rich Hebrew word speaking of the loyal love, the faithful love, the kindness of our God. And I love how Micah says, love it. You catch that? Love kindness. Love mercy. This is the attitude underneath the work of justice. That it is, it is mercy and justice working together, showing forth the character of God. You know, we have a fund here at Imago Day called the Micah Fund that is devoted to the work of mercy and justice. And mercy ministry is meeting needs through deeds. It is seeing the, the corruption, uh, uh, the, the needs that are in the world and trying to do something about it. And this is very broad, right? It'll be everything from caring for people with COVID, supporting the single mother, bringing joy to the widow, caring for orphans, feeding the hungry, praying with the dying, advocating for the unborn, advocating for the enslaved, giving medical care to the diseased, helping the unemployed, visiting prisoners, caring for and welcoming refugees, counseling the abused, comforting the grieving, serving the elderly, caring for the mentally ill, tutoring the underprivileged, ministering to juvenile delinquents, caring for the disabled, welcoming international students, ministering to the addicted, aiding victims of disaster, reforming broken social structures, doing aftercare for victims of sex trafficking, fighting child labor, child pornography, child prostitution, fighting gender side, seeking racial reconciliation, planting churches. These are just a, a, a few of what it looks like for us to love kindness, to give our lives for the needs of this world. And to love kindness and to do justice requires the third piece here of Micah 6.8, namely walking humbly with God. It's when I'm walking humbly with God, living in gratitude to God, that I give my life to justice and mercy, to walk humbly before him. This word humility is not the usual word in Hebrew for humility. It's the word for carefulness. Walk carefully with God. Give thoughts to your steps. Live wisely under his will. Don't live carelessly. Don't grow cold toward him, but live in gratitude to him. And we walk humbly, we walk carefully when we recall and remember all that the Messiah, Christ Jesus, has done for us, the one who lived Micah 6, 8 perfectly, the one who was humble, who was mindful of the least of these, who was mindful of us, the one, the Lord Jesus, who had all glory but humbled himself and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You know, we sing to him, a wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, and it very much fits with this passage here. As at the end of that hymn, it says, in, in light of the cross, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's the kind of life we offer to him. We offer him our lives. You see, friends, the good news of the gospel tonight is that Jesus did Micah 6, 8 perfectly. And he died for those who did not obey it perfectly, namely us. And he has forgiven us of all our injustices. He has forgiven us all of our sin and our selfishness. And he makes us new. And he now empowers us to do the work of justice and mercy until he comes and makes all things new. Micah's name means um, who is like Yahweh. 
and he writes his name into the book at the end of Micah chapter seven, verse eight, when he says, who is like you, O God? And the answer is tonight, no one. No one is like our God. And as we consider who he is and what he has done, we're motivated afresh to give our lives to him in complete obedience. You know, pretty soon we'll be in, in Advent and Micah 5 is always read during that time as it foretells this one coming from Bethlehem. And Micah concludes this little pericope in Micah 5, 2 to 5, and he says, regarding Jesus, the one who is to come, he shall be their peace. Jesus Christ will return and he will bring in total shalom, total peace. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And until he comes, we give our lives to him and surrender in obedience. And that's the sermon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. I pray that we would not find service to you a wearisome thing, but something that we gladly offer to you in light of all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Even now, as we prepare to take the table, we do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Stir our affections afresh, we pray tonight. Make us a community of justice and mercy, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.